Good to see you guys. Good to be back with you this morning and believe about half of what he just said. No, the, the facts are true. Um, yeah, it's good to be back with y'all. A number of years ago, I uh, attended a leadership conference with my wife. And while we were there, sorry, let me uh, I'm set, set myself a timer here. Uh, my goal is to preach shorter than Keith today, just by the way, which I don't think will be hard because I think he's long-winded from what I've gathered. <laughs> I'd say it if he was right here with us. But anyway, back to my story. Um, a number of years ago, I attended a leadership conference here in Dallas with my wife, and the, uh, the speaker of one of the sessions began his talk by asking, who here in the room is single? And people raised their hands. And he said, y'all ain't busy. And then he asked, all right, who in here is married, but you don't have kids? And they raised their hands. He said, y'all ain't busy. And he went on down the line, one kid, two kids. And somewhere around three or four kids, he finally said, okay, you guys are busy. Amen. <laughs> and whether you have three or more kids... I know uh, there's, there's some of us in the room here who do. Um, whether that's you or not, regardless, we all feel busy sometimes. Maybe most of the time or even all of the time, we feel busy. Regardless of our age, our circumstances, the amount of kids we have, we can feel like life is moving too fast that it's spinning out of control and we're on the brink of burnout. And to compound this problem, I would argue that we have a love-hate relationship with busyness. We have a love-hate relationship with it. While we hate the pressure of it, we hate feeling like we have too much to do, we also have this sense of love for being busy and we often choose to fill our lives with all kinds of things. And why in the world do we do that? Why do we love it even though we hate it? It's because busyness in our culture is a sign of importance. We have bought into the lie that the only way you can matter is if you are busy. The busier you are, the more important you are. In a New York Times article, The Busy Trap, Tim Kreider says this, Busyness serves as a kind of hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. While we may think that the solution to this problem would be offloading our tasks, I hate to break it to you, but that's not the answer because that's not the primary problem. Our real problem isn't that we have busy lives. Our real problem is that we have busy souls. The primary problem is that we have busy souls. And the way one author put it, we have busy souls because we want to be like God. We want to be like God. We might not want to admit this, but it's true. God is limitless. He's unbound by 
anything, including time and space. Who wouldn't want that, right? But listen to how Eugene and Peterson explains how we fall into this busyness of soul wanting to be like God. He writes, A curious thing happens to us when we get a taste of God. It happened first in Eden, and it keeps happening. The experience of God, the ecstasy, the wholeness of it, is accompanied by a temptation to reproduce the experience as God. The taste for God is debased into a greed to be God. Being loved by God is twisted in a, into a lust to God performance. I get a glimpse of a world in which God is in charge, and I think maybe I have a chance at it. We want to be God, and this creates in us busy souls. So what are we supposed to do about this? Can we somehow become less busy? Can we somehow stop having a busy soul? That's what I want to talk with you today about as we look at Psalm chapter 139. And at this point in my notes, I'm supposed to introduce myself a little bit and tell you some things, but Steve, you more than adequately covered that, you know, that line about the other school, you know, we'll just, uh, you know, Jesus tells us to forgive one another, so you're forgiven, brother. But yeah, I was here last October. I got to spend the weekend in uh, October with your men uh, on the men's retreat, and we had all kinds of fun together, drank way too much coffee out of this really amazing machine. Um, yeah, I think I, I shared then, I, I was reminding myself a little bit of like, wh- hey, what did, what did I talk about last time? We had one of the guys, I think it was a high school kid, who was, eating, who was drinking espresso till like two in the morning. Uh, it, was, it was quite a weekend. But it was good to be with y'all. Last time I was here, I didn't have my family with me. They're here with me today. And, and uh, every time I'm here, I'm just uh, overwhelmed with the reality of this being a church that is marked by love for one another. Every time I'm here, um, I don't see people who just kind of show up and kind of do their thing for an hour and, you know, go about their way. I know that you're deeply connected with one another. You deeply love one another and you live like family because that's what we are as, as believers. And so I just want to keep encouraging you to, to be family and, and welcome new people into your family. But, uh, I, uh, just want to say, I love your pastor. Keith is a dear friend of mine. Um, and I've, I've just really uh, been blessed by him. We, we actually stayed in their house last night. They had, their daughters had little welcome gifts for my daughters. And, uh, you know, my wife said to me last night, I don't remember her exact words, but essentially she said, there's just like a, a, a calmness and a peace in this home, you know, and they're not even there. And I just sense that that's because of what happens in that home. There's a lot of worship happening in that home. There's a lot of discipleship happening in that home. It was evident just by the things on the walls and everywhere we turned. My, one of my kids said, there's Bible verses everywhere here. <laughs> and I know that, that that stuff is there externally because that is who Keith and who Kendall and their kids are internally. That's what they are. They're people who love Jesus. They love God. They love his word. 
Um, you know that. I, I mean, I, I don't have to tell you that. You know that. And I just want to en- encourage you or commend you giving him space to breathe this summer and rest and be restored and renewed. I know that cost you something as a church. And I want to tell you, I promise you it will be worth everything that you are doing to bless them with that. And I'm going to join you in praying that God would give them a fresh wind in his spirit and that he would send them into another seven years, fully recharged, ready to go, continue to to pastoring you and, and leading you to make disciples here. So I hear that you have been in 1 Samuel, and now this summer you're transitioning into a series on the Psalms, and I think that's wonderful. I love the Psalms. I think it's kind of interesting that you've been studying the life of David, and now we get to go talk about some of his prayers, some of the ways that he connected with our God. And so I'm excited to get to start that out with you today in Psalm 139. And as we look at this passage, I believe that we will find out if there is a way for us to have a less busy soul. We'll discover some of the ways that we try to be like God. We'll see how he is so much better at his job than we could ever be. I mean, newsflash, right? But before we read, I want to ask you to bow your head with me, and we're going to ask God to come and meet with us today, because ultimately, we don't need to hear from me. We need to hear from him. Father, it is such a joy to be back here at City Church Garland. I thank you for these brothers and, the, and sisters and their, their hospitality um, to me and my family and to anyone who comes into this place. And God, I pray that you would just keep doing a deep work in them. I pray right now for Keith, for Kendall and their four kids as they are um, getting some rest this weekend and this summer. I pray that you would just... Uh, draw them close to yourself, and that in your presence you would renew them with strength and joy. And God, this morning as we gather here, we come into this place desperate for you. We need to see you, we need to hear from you, and we need to be near you. And so we ask that you would come into this place. We we believe you're already here. We just ask that in, in a very powerful way you would come and speak to us, and that you would be with us, and that we would be changed as a result. Would you give us ears that are open to what you want to say to us, hearts that are open to you, and how you might be calling us to change and to trust you more? And we pray that we would be quick to respond to the truth that you reveal to us today in obedience and trust. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, that everything I say this morning that is not of you would fall to the ground, but the things that are of you would be remembered and would honor you, and they would help us today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So before we read, earlier I made the point that we are busy. We are crazy busy because our souls are busy because we want to be like God. Well, what ways do we want to be like God? The first way that we try to be like God is we want to know everything. We want to know everything. Anybody in the room, a a fellow eavesdropper? 
You don't have to raise your hand. But I just outed myself. It's really hard not to eavesdrop. Like, my, my office, like, don't tell him this, but my office shares a wall with my pastor. And sometimes I literally have to leave the room or put in headphones because I want to know some of those things that he's talking about. But we try to know everything. Some of us are addicted to acquiring knowledge. And so we do things like read all kinds of books and articles. We devour podcasts. We, I don't know if anybody still does this, but we listen to TED Talks. And we even multitask while listening to audiobooks while we drive, while we exercise, and while we do just about anything else. I mean, I do that when I mow the yard. Pursuing knowledge is fine and good. Don't mishear me, okay? Pursuing knowledge is good, but attempting to know everything is not. We can't do that. And listen to what King David writes in Psalm 139 in the first six verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So, I said that we try to be like God. We try to know everything. That's because God actually does know everything. He knows all things. God is omniscient, all-knowing. In verse 1, what astounds David isn't just God's general knowledge It is his personal knowledge of him. God doesn't just know things. God knows everything about David. And God knows everything that there is to know about you. And he knows everything that there is to know about me. In verses 2 through 4... David goes through listing things that God knows about him. And in these verses, what we see is that God specifically knows his actions. He knows his thoughts and his motives. And he knows his words even before he says them. God knows David through and through. He knows us inside and out. And God's complete Perfect knowledge is so staggering that David responds in verses 5 and 6 by telling God that he is overwhelmed, he's captivated by God's total awareness of him, and it is beyond David's understanding. And so the way I would put this in a nutshell in verses 1 through 6, the truth that David is saying is that our all-knowing God knows everything there is to know about you and me. Now, knowing everything isn't the only reason why we have busy souls. That's the first reason. The second reason we have busy souls, the second way we try to be like God is we want to be everywhere all at one time. We want to be everywhere at the same time. We are fueled by FOMO, the fear of missing out. 
And so we try to be everywhere all at once. Now, I can imagine that you don't need a lot of convincing of this, this, this trying to be everywhere, but let me give you just two proofs. First of all, this is really evident in our addiction to social media. This is why it has its teeth in so many of us. Social media offers us the chance to feel like we are in all kinds of places. Just in the matter of minutes, I can watch my friend at the Astros game and then watch my friend who's on vacation in Istanbul and then watch somebody else who's in the mountains in Colorado. And before I know it, I've traveled the whole dadgum world from the screen of my phone in a matter of minutes. Social media gives us this facade of being everywhere. Here's another example of this. And let me be very clear. What I'm about to talk about is not what's happening this moment, this morning, where there is a live preacher who is being videoed so that people who are not in attendance can watch. But there are churches who that in, have traded the live preaching for a video. So it would be like all of us in this room watching somebody else preach right now from another campus. And on one level, like, that doesn't seem, it seems kind of harmless. Like, well, at least we're, we're getting taught the word of God by somebody. What's the big deal? Well, most of the time when that is happening, a church is saying, we don't trust in the gifts and abilities that God has given multiple people. We have one guy that is so charismatic and so good at teaching that we just need to have him teach at all of our campuses. And so we'll just video it live, have it go to all these other places. And that's relying too much on one person rather than relying on God. And so as Christians, as churches, we can be guilty of this too. And one of the ways I know that this is kind of how that, that works is there's a lot of churches that have actually moved away from that. They've said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're only going to do live teaching. Because people weren't created, you and I weren't created to be in more than one place at one time. God gave us a physical body that grounds us in a physical place. So we want to be everywhere at one time. But look at what David writes in verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God is everywhere at the same time. He and he alone is able to be in an endless amount of places at the exact same time because our God is all present. He is omnipresent. In verse 7, David's response to realizing that God is all-knowing was to do what Adam and Eve did way back in the garden. He wanted to run and hide. 
And, and, and we're not really any different, right? Because when you realize that God knows everything about you, that means that he even knows the things about you that you don't like and that you know aren't right. And that's a little bit, like, frightening, isn't it? And so David has this urge to run and to hide, yet he also realizes realizes that this is a waste of time because there is nowhere that he can go to outrun God. There's nowhere he can go to escape from his presence. In verses 8 through 10, he starts listing these hypothetical places he could try to flee to, and none of them are good hiding places. David realizes that when it comes to hide and seek, God has got that game on lock. Nobody is going to win. The highest heaven, the lowest depth in Sheol, nope. David lists these extreme opposites, which is a poetic device called merism. If you're a theology nerd or a Bible nerd, there's your term for the morning, merism. And what this does is it, it's using these extremes to talk about everything in between. And what David is saying is, there's nowhere I can go in all of creation. You are there in its entirety, in its whole, you are there. And he concludes that God is present in all places. Doesn't matter if David goes to the deepest part of the ocean. And I looked this up because I wanted to remember, I had heard this before. You know, the deepest part of the ocean is the Mariana Trench. And it is 36,161 feet below sea level. Do you imagine how dark it must be down there? But even if David were to go there, God would find him. And God, he, what he says here in verse 10, even if he went there, even in that place, God's hand would lead me and his right hand would hold him. God would gently care for him even in that place. And David finishes this section on God's omnipresence by exclaiming how even darkness can't hide him from God. You know in Scripture, dark and light are like metaphors for sin and, and goodness. Dark and sin, light and goodness. Before the world, there was just darkness and chaos, and God filled it with light. But why couldn't he hide from God in darkness? Why couldn't darkness hide him, because the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you, he says. David realizes that God, the creator of light, is so glorious that he shines as bright as the sun. Wherever God goes, the darkness is instantly overcome by his marvelous light. And that is why John, when he describes the new heaven and, earth, and new earth in Revelation 21, he writes this in verses 23 through 25. And the city, talking about the new Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine in it for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb, talking about Jesus. By its light, nation, light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. talks about in the Bible, God, uh, God dwells in inapproachable light. He is so bright, so glorious. 
And in these verses 7 through 12 in this middle section, what David makes absolutely clear for us is that our all-present God is everywhere we go, and there is nowhere we could go to escape his presence. So to recap, we have busy souls because we try to know everything, and we want to be everywhere at one time. But there's a third way that we want to be like God, and that is that we want to fix everything. We think that we can somehow make everything around us better. And so we try to solve everyone's problems. We try to do everything. So we say yes to everything. And sometimes we live as though everything would be right in the world if we were in control, if we ran things. And again, I know like we don't really like just sit up in the morning and be like, man, the world would be a better place if I was in control. We don't say that out loud. It's not a conscious thing, but we see it in the way that we live and the way that we act and the way that we behave. And when's the last time you just couldn't imagine not being somewhere that you're supposed to be? And so you, you just kept a, a commitment that you, you shouldn't have kept. And I'm not saying keeping commitments is bad. But like every now and then, you just have things that you need to say no to or you have to back out of. Honestly, like I'm really glad that you're giving Keith a break because it helps. It's a way that Keith is saying, you guys are going to be okay without me. This church is not built on Keith Dollar. It's built on Jesus. And you giving him that break is a way that God is reminding you and teaching you that this church is not solely reliant upon Keith. And, and y'all know, I, I love your pastor. He is a great man who God is using powerfully in this place, and I'm not trying to denigrate him at all. But God does not need any of us. And so thank you for, for, for leaning into um, his sufficiency. Sorry, I got totally sidetracked. <laughs> but many times, you and I, we try to save the day. We try to rescue everyone. And why do we do that? We believe the lie that the only way we can prove ourselves worthy is by coming through for others. We define our value on if other people feel like we are we are reliable. But here's the thing. We weren't created to do everything. We weren't created to fix everyone. And our souls suffocate when we try. So if we can't do everything, what can we do? Let's look at this last section. And we're going to do this one a little uh, different. We're going to read just a couple of verses at a time. We'll start with just verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. David is starting to put the pieces together here. And it clicked for him that the reason why God knows everything about him and is everywhere he could possibly go is because God is his creator. God is our infinite, all-powerful creator he formed us in our mother's wombs, knitting us together. And I love that language, knitting. It's not like he just threw some stuff against the wall. It wasn't some just Rorschach-looking painting in the womb. 
but he, like a surgeon or like an artist who would meticulously form a sculpture, he created us with care and precision and excellence. And every single one of us in this room, God created you the way that you are and he finds you beautiful and he doesn't make mistakes. We owe everything, our very existence to him. And look at uh, verse 14. David realized this. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. That's what I was just talking about. This staggering reality caused David to erupt in praise. God is worthy because he fashioned us together. And then verses 15 and 16. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So David expounds on another realm of God's knowledge and his presence from our very conception before we are even born. The depths of the earth is just figurative language for the womb. So when we were in our mother's stomachs, God saw us, and we, before we ever drew our first breath or lived a single day, God saw us, and he knew every single thing that would ever happen to us throughout our entire lives. And I know these verses are common. Unfortunately for me, as I was studying this week, I have to confess, I have preached sermons on this passage before, and the first half of the week, I was engaging this in an intellectual way, like as if it was just facts. But then somewhere along the way, I just stopped and thought about it. It's like, how great is God that he would create us and create us with that type of care and that he would stand sovereign over all of our days and that he would do that in a way out of his perfect wisdom and goodness. And how different it changes my perspective and it changes my life when I believe that and I actually live like it. Because when I wake up in the morning, I don't have to fear what's going to happen today. God already knows. I don't have to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow because God is already there. And this changes things. I want it to to spark worship and adoration in me and in anyone I know for our good and gracious God. Let's check out what David says in verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. This power that God has, this intimate knowledge that God has of him became precious to David. And that's different than just knowing it. That is treasuring it. And most importantly, treasuring God himself. 
And this gave David plenty to think about. He started to to grasp, at least on some level, what is uniquely true of God, that he is infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. Unlike anything else in all of existence, God has no birthday. And David came to the right conclusion. He says here that trying to grasp and comprehend God in all of his fullness and all of his infinite infinitude is trying to, to comprehend that is as impossible as trying to count every, every grain of sand on every beach across the entire world. I mean, good luck trying to count any grain of sand in any small amount of bucket. Yesterday, we were over at the Perot Museum with my kids, and there's this really cool part, part of the exhibit where you can go into this giant thing of sand that's got a projector pointing down over it. And as you change the, the shapes of the sand, so it kind of looks like kind of almost like a desert, you know, with like little hills, it adjusts the top, topographical like lines and colors. And so it literally is like live in real time. So as you like scoop the sand and move it this way, it like moves the circles and the colors. If I tried to pick up just a handful of that sand and then start counting them by like 133, I'd lose count. And yet God is bigger and knows all the sand on all the seashores. And what this points out to us in this section, this last section we've been walking through, is that our infinite, all-powerful God created us. He is good, and he is in control of our entire lives. Now, as we take all of this in, what I hope doesn't happen is that we treat this like just some sort of like class at school where we would take notes and list, okay, God is all-knowing, God is all-present, God is all-powerful, and just put those notes in our Bible and go live our lives the same way we've lived them up until this point. That would be a tragedy. What I hope these truths about God do is usher us to a place of humility and awe and worship, and then from there, faithful trust and obedience. Because the greatness of God is more than a a truth to be known. It is a foundation to build our lives upon. It's like what we sung about earlier this morning. Because in the end, what matters most when it comes to whether or not you and I will have busy souls is what we actually do with this great God, this infinite God. Whether we trust Him as being all-knowing, trust Him as being all-present, trust Him as being all-powerful and live our lives like He is. Because the answer to our busy souls is a gospel answer. When we stop and we remind ourselves who God is and believe that he is the one who knows everything, all there is to know about us, instead of trying to know everything, what it does is that frees us up to know God instead. It frees us up to know him because God created you. He created me to be in relationship 
with him. And though sin broke that relationship, he sent Jesus to the earth to live a perfect life of trust, obedience, submission to God, and then pay the penalty for our sins to lay down his life. Even though he didn't deserve that punishment, he took our punishment upon himself and went to the cross and sacrificed himself for you and for me. And he did that to reconcile us back to God so that we could actually know God and live in relationship with him. That we could be adopted as his sons and daughters. And if we know Jesus, we can know God, the one who knows all things, and we can find freedom from the bondage of wanting to know everything. And Paul experienced this. Remember what he wrote in 1 Corinthians? I know y'all went through 1 Corinthians uh, sometime not too, too far back. Chapter 2, he writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so what I would argue is the way that you and I can have a less busy soul, the first way, is we can decide right now that we are going to devote our lives to knowing Jesus instead of trying to know everything. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And if we know him, we will know everything we need to know as we know him. As we dwell on the truth of Scripture and we soak in ourselves in this reality of who God is, that second piece, when we, when we soak in the reality that God is the only one who can be everywhere at one time, that brings freedom too. When we understand that he is everywhere that we've ever been, he's everywhere we are, and he is everywhere we will ever be, where, everywhere we could possibly be, we feel less of a need to try to be everywhere at one time. God isn't bound by space, but he created us. I said this earlier. He created us bound by space. He created us to only be in one place at one time. And here's the thing. His design for us isn't faulty. He knew what he was doing when he created you and me to only be able to be here in this room at 1145 on this day. That's a gift. The limit of being bound by space is a gift from God because that's all we can handle. And here's what else happens. When we decide to be fully present where we are and we stop trying to be everywhere else, go figure, we might actually enjoy life. We might experience greater intimacy with others. And I'm not just talking about our spouse or our kids. I'm talking about anybody that we actually sit down with. And instead of looking at our phone like just this, you know, head on a swivel, we can actually know other people and be known and get a foretaste of what it's going to be like when we're in fellowship with God another in eternity with nothing hindering that. And you know what happens when you learn to be content with being in one place instead of trying to be everywhere else? You actually start to experience this thing that even though your life certainly isn't perfect, it's actually pretty good. And God's given you a lot of good things. As we stop wanting to be God, to just want God himself, 
we start to breathe again because God gives life. And David knew this. In Psalm 16, this is one of my favorite passages in all the scripture. Psalm 16, verse 11, he writes, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, we're out chasing pleasure everywhere under the sun when pleasure is found in one place and it's found wherever God is. And you see, God sent Jesus to give us life abundantly and eternally. And that is why in John 6, when Jesus asked the disciples, this was the passage where he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And like the crowds were like, this guy's a weirdo. Cannibalism, I'm out. And they took off. It literally says that many left following him that day. Open air preacher, they thought he was pretty great, thought he was pretty interesting. He said that, peace out. So Jesus turns and he looks to the disciples and he says, hey, do you want to go away as well? We see the humanity of Jesus in this question. I don't think he just asked this for them. I think it also is like, it hurt him, I think, for people to see, I don't want you. That's painful. Not because he needed anybody to like him or want him, but it's just painful, right? But he asked them that, and I love Peter's response. Lord, who else are we going to go to? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Why would I go anywhere? We can have less busy souls. And the second way we can do that, choose to be in one place with Jesus instead of trying to be everywhere else without him. Choose to just be in one place wherever you are with Jesus instead of everywhere else. But David didn't just believe these truths about God. What you're seeing, I hope you're seeing, is he entrusted his very soul to God. He entrusted his soul to God. And that is why in Psalm 57, verse 1, he says, Be merciful to me, O God, for in you my soul takes refuge. You hear that? My soul takes refuge in you. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. David literally ran for his life from King Saul. If y'all didn't cover that already, I can't remember. Is that, that's, I think that is in 1 Samuel. Y'all are nodding. It's been a minute since I've read it. And David could have tried to save himself. He had many opportunities to, but he didn't do that. He knew God was stronger and God was better than anything or anyone else. And so he sought refuge in God. When life got hard, when he was in danger, no matter how dark it got, David ran to God and he trusted in God's perfect, powerful, loving care. And if we want to be less busy, we've got to do the same because God created us. He knows everything we ever go through and he is good. And we know this from creation. We know this from our existence. We know it from, if you look in the rear view of your life, you see God's faithfulness at every turn. He has provided for you. He has protected you. 
So it filled my mind and heart this morning as I thought about, you know, all my life you've been faithful. All my life. Think about that. What are the moments in your life when you really thought, maybe this is it. Maybe I won't survive. And yet God carried you through. That's who he is. And we know God's goodness in that way, but the clearest way we know that God is good is through the cross. And one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture, and my guess, just from knowing a little bit about Keith, he's probably got a lot of favorites. This is probably one of his too, and it's Romans chapter 8. And in verses 31 and 32, we read this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God gave us his very best, if he gave us his most precious son, Jesus, we can trust him with today. If God took care of our greatest need, our need for forgiveness and redemption, even though we didn't deserve it, we can trust him with tomorrow. And Paul continues, I want to read the last part of chapter 8, Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is more powerful than us than anything or anyone that we could ever come up against. And the victory that Jesus won has secured our souls from now until forever. We can have a less busy soul, but you have to trust Jesus with your life.